Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. What kind of reaction do you get if you read a news article hearing about a grade school age kid that runs a marathon? It typically does get news coverage since it doesn't happen often, but if you look at comments on social media, there are often lots of comments about the cruelty of it, the craziness of the parents, even sometimes I've seen comments about it being child abuse. What if we bump the age up to middle school or even high school? Does it get a similar reaction? Today on the podcast, we're going to touch on a somewhat controversial question as, is it okay to let a kid run a marathon? I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to finally have this guest on. He's been a longtime friend and colleague of mine in the world of pediatric sports medicine. I've even taken the podcast remote to his home in Virginia to record this while I'm here presenting Grand Rounds at the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughter in Norfolk. My guest today is Dr. Joel Brenner. Dr. Brenner is the medical director of CHKD's sports medicine program and the director of CHKD's sports concussion, dance medicine, and running medicine programs. His most recent interest has been in developing a program of mindfulness for the young athlete, and we will be probably having an episode about that sometime in the future. He is currently a professor of pediatrics at Eastern Virginia Medical School. He is the past chairperson for the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness, and is a past member of the board of directors of the American Medical Society of Sports Medicine. He is currently on the Virginia High School League Sports Medicine Advisory Committee. He is the team physician for local high schools, the Governor's School of the Performing Arts, and two professional dance companies. He was one of the co-editors for the January 2017 British Journal of Sports Medicine issue on the young athlete and the lead author of the AAP Sports Specialization and Overuse, Overtraining, and Burnout Reports. He also helped create the 2016 NBA and USA Basketball's Youth Basketball Guidelines. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, it's it's fun to be here. I'm, we have some nice weather here in Virginia. We had a nice little conversation after I arrived, just catching up after several years of not being in contact with each other, thanks to COVID and, and various other issues. But let's start off with something off topic, as I'm super curious, the origin of the name of the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters. It's a tad bit unique. What's the origins of that? Well, interesting story. So it goes all the way back to 1886 when a group of women who were all members of the Granby Street Methodist Church had learned actually 10 years earlier of an association called the International Order of the King's Daughters and Sons, which is a brand new group founded on the principle of service to others. Its motto was look up, not down, look forward, not back, look out, not in, lend a hand. So the small church group embraced the motto and signed on to form the first King's Daughters Circle in Norfolk in 1886. Multiple circles came together, forming the Norfolk City Union of the King's Daughters in 1896, which then became referred to as the King's Daughters. The first action in 1897 was to establish a visiting nurse service. They hired a Miss Edith Nason, who was a nurse. And the first year she visited houses on foot. The second year she got a bicycle. (laughs) And then 
Virginia's first and still only freestanding hospital for children opened in 1961 and established a pediatric residency in 1963. And it's continued to grow from there. So this is really the only freestanding children's hospital in Virginia? It is the only one in the whole state. Wow. I am a little surprised by that, actually. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So are there other children's hospitals, though, like kind of a hospital within a hospital? Correct. All right. Correct. So I, I know yes. that model well, having uh, been yes. in Wisconsin, but now they have their freestanding children's hospital there. So they have two in the state. We're going to move on to our topic of just should kids run marathons? I've actually personally found this an interesting line that seems to draw, it's just this line drawn in the sand. And it seems like such a controversial topic. We've had some research that's been come out in this area as of late. I'm going to talk about an article from Bill Roberts. He's a sports medicine physician in Minnesota. We actually had him on the podcast to talk about the pre-participation exam with Dr. David Bernhardt probably a year or plus ago. So if you want to learn more about the PPE, he was one of the co-editors of the PPE monograph. And that was an interesting episode. He has some interesting anecdotes about sports physicals himself. But He's long been in the camp that it does not seem to be any less safe for those under 18 to run a marathon. I'm, I'm going to summarize his article that he wrote a little bit, and then I'm going to have Joel talk about another recent article. So the first article we'll talk about was published in the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine. Bill Roberts was the lead author. He published his experience of over 26 years of being the medical director for the Twin Cities Marathon. He looked at the race records of finishers under 18 years of age from the 1982 through the 2007 marathons. There were a total of 310 finishers, ages 7 to 17. There were 225 boys and 85 girls. The finishing time ranged from 2.53 for 2 hours and 53 minutes. So kudos to that kid because that's well past uh, or well much better than I ever would have run a marathon uh, to 6 hours and 10 minutes for the slowest of the finishers. All of the sub three-hour marathoners were run actually by 17-year-old boys, just to put that in perspective. And over the time frame studied, only four medical encounters incurred in this age group. And one of those was in a 16-year-old boy, another was a 16-year-old girl, and then a 17-year-old boy and a 17-year-old girl. These were all considered mild encounters for considered mild exhaustion was the diagnosis, none of which needed more attention than just rest. And if we looked at statistics, how they kind of figured this out, this worked out to a medical encounter incidence of 12.9 per 1,000 youth finishers. In the same time frame, there were 144,984 adults who finished with a total of 3,572 medical encounters, and there was an incidence of 24.6 medical encounters per 1,000 finishers. So almost twice the incidence of the youth and adolescent athletes who ran. This was a relative risk of requiring care for youth compared to adults was 0.52. It did not meet statistical significance, however. And in this race, there are basically 10 to 20 annual finishers under the age of 18. And that race fills about five months prior to the race date. So it's clearly something that these youth and adolescents are not just doing at the spur of the moment. They're actually planning in advance to complete this because they have to register so far in advance to actually be one of the uh, participants. Even in the hottest year where the wet bulb temperature was 27 degrees Celsius, which works out to 80.6 degrees Fahrenheit, none of the youth runners required medical care or were transferred off the course by ambulance. Now, there are some limitations. It's not known how many youth participants were registered each year, how many started, and how many did not finish. But good data. And like I said, after someone who has a very big interest in this particular area, 
and has advocated as a medical director for this race of letting those under the age of 18 participate in this event. I know the St. Louis race that I was involved with for about 10 years, that was something that was done on a case-by-case basis, but typically was not allowed for someone under the age of 18 to run. I don't know. I know, Joel, you've been involved with marathon distance races here in Virginia as a medical director. Did you did you guys have any specific criteria for that? Do you remember? There wasn't. It did uh, come up towards the end of my tenure of whether we should allow those under 18, but it, it would be more of a case-by-case too. Yeah. And I think a lot of places do that. The Twin Cities Marathon seems to be a little bit more liberal as far as who they allow in and having a lot more uh, ability to let young kids run. But there was also a recent article that I'm going to let Joel talk about in the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine. The lead author was Joshua Goldman, and they looked at their experience following kids who ran in the Students Run Los Angeles Marathon training program. So, Joel, talk to that uh, about that article for our listeners. So in in this study, they followed, again, the high school and middle school students who participated in Students Run Los Angeles, which was a 28-week marathon training program. And the formal training consisted of four training runs per week, starting with two-mile runs and increasing up to 20 miles. And the students were required to complete a half marathon at week 14 in order to continue the program. Injury was defined as pain during or after a training run that was reported to a volunteer coach who did not have any medical training. Uh, Approximately 1,927 students completed the program, which was about 70% who started from 69 schools. 62% were in high school, 37% middle school. The mean age was 15 years. Over the entire program, 18% or 353 students reported 583 injuries. 21% were in high school versus 14% in middle school runners, which was a significant difference. There was no difference between the male and female runners. The most common set of injury was the knee. 72% were considered acute and 3% chronic. 61% of the injured runners took time off for an average of 4.8 days, but only 26% sought medical care. The mean distance run per week varied from 10 to 23 miles with an absolute range of 0 to 47 miles. Runners who sustained an injury over the program ran a greater distance per week of 15 miles versus 12 miles. And during the 2018 LA Marathon, 99% of the participants completed the race although this included students who were not included in the data. So this study showed that adolescents can complete a marathon training program with minimal short-term negative effects, but it doesn't really provide any information on the long-term effects of distant running in adolescents. One benefit that Student Run Los Angeles has shown is a correlation between marathon completion and high school graduation. Some of the limitations of this study are that the volunteer coaches had no medical training. There was an incomplete data set, which did lead to an underestimation of injury incidents and weekly training volume. There was unknown of whether there was an effect of multi-sport participation, and there was no race day injury data. So I think it's really interesting looking at this data. I'm glad that this article came out. It actually was kind of something that spurred me to talk to you about doing this podcast episode again, because now we have some additional data. I'm not surprised as far as injury rates at all with this. I quote a lot and I talk to a lot of cross country teams in the area in St. Louis. And I always ask the question, I said, well, what sport do you think is the most likely sport to get injured in? What's the highest injury rate of all the sports in high school sports? 
This is going back to Steve Rice's data from Seattle Children's when he was there a long time ago. And they're always surprised when I say high school girls cross country as higher than football. But I also put it in perspective, it's the overuse injuries. And so it's not unusual for us to see that. And there's all sorts of reasons why we can see that. I mean, you and I both who work with runners a lot and have been runners, we certainly know that running a lot, especially if you do like a lot of runners do, where we just put the miles in, but we may not do our strength training, we may not take our proper rest days, that you are going to be more likely to get an overuse injury at some point. So I, I don't think that's unusual at all. I mean, did you find anything that kind of spurred you one way or the other with this study? Not really. I thought it was interesting to know that they could complete the training program and be successful and, and not have any significant injuries. I, again, I thought some of the limitations did lead to some problems of interpretation. For instance, they said that there was only 3% chronic, and they pointed out in the study that their definitions of chronic and acute was basically just that the pain presented for within that 30 days. But you can have an overuse injury that you don't have the pain until later on. So it was good information, but I think it still leads room for more research to be done in this area. Yeah. And I, I, it's going to be difficult because I know just like your and I experiences where there's limited runners that are let in under the age of 18 for a lot of these, it's going to be a, a place like the LA program or Twin Cities where we're probably going to get most of our data when we're looking at this. But you know, again, we're not seeing anything that looks like significant adverse effects of these adolescents completing this. And the big positive, but you talked about the correlation between completing a marathon and high school graduation. Mm -hmm. When I just see a report come out the other day of 50,000 kids for the first day of school in LA who show up as absentee, that's not a good start to your school year for the 2022 school year. So, you know, if we can see these things as being positive effects and and that, then then again, that to me is a big plus. That's not a, a negative at all as far as running a, a marathon. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com.
just looking at some of the other literature, there have been some articles that did some serologic studies after marathons and half marathons in adolescents. There was an article that was published in the European Journal of Clinical Investigation, and it looked at kidney and liver function as well as energy metabolism before at the end and then 24 hours after a competitive marathon. And there were 47 runners in this. They were between the ages of 13 and 17. They completed the marathon with an average finishing time of four hours and 57 minutes. None experienced an adverse event in this group. The lab findings suggested evidence of lipid oxidation, signs of minor hepatic injury and transient reduced kidney function, none of which was different from what's been observed in adults and looking at the same type of information. And then there was another study from the journal Current Medicinal Chemistry, probably one that's all hot in our list that we read on a regular basis, I'm sure. This was a published study from 2011, and it looked at cardiac troponin release following a half marathon, which was an interesting thing to look at there. In 63 adolescents, there was a mean age of 16 and a half with 10 females that were in the study, so it was mostly males. And interestingly, the post-exercise cardiac troponin level increases were found in 90% of the runners some reaching the threshold that we would see in an acute myocardial infarction, which was kind of interesting, which makes us ponder, you know, when we look at the sensitive study or sensitive lab test for myocardial infarction, and then we have 90% of these adolescent runners who have levels reaching that that are seen in acute MI, are we really looking at truly just the cardiac thing? And is it truly actual significant cardiac damage, or is it just the stress of the race? And those who had less training experience demonstrated higher levels post-race. But, but it is important to note that this finding has also been seen in adult runners, too. So it's not unique just to kids. You've been involved as an author, a contributor, even a lead author in several policy and position statements from both the AAP and the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, AMSSM, on the topic of overtraining and overuse. And I think it'd be helpful to our listeners to summarize what the stance of the AAP and AMSSM have been. Back in 2006, uh, through the American Academy of Pediatrics, we looked at all the evidence and the data that was available at that point and published our overuse overtraining burnout clinical report. And we actually just recently this month, Dr. Andrew Watson and I looked at the evidence again to revise the clinical report. And we've come up with the same recommendations and conclusions that is to suggest that children and adolescents should be allowed to participate in endurance events such as marathons, provided that they're intrinsically motivated, they follow an appropriate and supervised training program, and they can maintain a normal growth and development both physically and psychologically. And the focus needs to be on fun and fitness. And we purposely did not set an age. It would be an arbitrary age. We really left it open from that standpoint. And one of the things that we've also found over the years is that endurance sports really represent a very accessible and inexpensive form of physical activity that have been successfully introduced among traditionally underserved children and communities. So it's a good way to introduce sports and physical activities to other people, too. You know, we have some studies out there. We have some policy statements that are out there that, you know, again, we don't have a set age or set guideline for these. Uh, there was actually, it was an article also that I had come across, although it didn't have any data on injury or adverse effects of kids participating in ultra marathons. So 50K, 100K races, and a significant number of them. And again, it just showed that they participated in these events and, and completed these events, but it didn't talk about any other effects. So it was just looking at participation data. So this doesn't just stop at marathon. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, you know, your take on this as, as a runner, myself as a runner, 
probably a little biased in this. <laughs> we'll put that out there as far as, you know, should kids be participating in marathons or not. But where do you think from your standpoint that some of the pushback comes from specifically for the topic of a marathon? You know, I think, as you said, we both have run marathons, half marathons. We know what it takes to train properly and we know what it feels like and the pain and discomfort that you can get after running a marathon too. So I think the concern can be knowing what adults go through. Do we want kids to go through that? And I think some of it comes down to the age. A six-year-old running marathon is different than a 16-year-old running a marathon. I think it's hard for anyone to say that a six-year-old has the cognitive ability to decide that they want to run 26.2 miles, be out on the course for anywhere from four to eight hours. They're typically probably not running the whole time. They're doing other things. It's hard for a six-year-old to just pay attention for 20 minutes, let alone that long. I think it's hard, you know, when we're coming up with the younger people. Now, when we've got a a 16-year-old, a lot of times they can make that decision and they might be intrinsically motivated. Hopefully there's not as much extrinsic push from coaches or parents too, though. And we got to watch out for that. Yeah. And I think where we see a lot of this, and, and I think where a lot of the trouble comes from is you'll see some of these families that are highlighted, these running families that where it seems like all the kids down to a very young age are running. And those are the ones that get the media and they get the press. And then it starts kind of turning on this. But you know, we have experience from the Twin Cities Marathon. We have experience from the LA Marathon of these high school age kids and even younger and for some of the Twin Cities ones that they're successfully completing this. And I've always put it in terms of this, running in general just seems to get a bad rap as a sport. And I, it drives me crazy and I don't understand why. I mean, we hear about running causes arthritis, which we know has actually been proven in the literature that it's not. It actually can have a protective effect against osteoarthritis. And it's a lifelong sport, which I don't know why we try and discourage kids away from these lifelong sports and pivot them to sports that probably are going to be ones that are going to end most likely for the vast majority at high school age. Some of them maybe collegiate. It kind of frustrates me a little bit that we kind of push that off a little bit and that it seems like it's such a hard endeavor to do this, but we don't have any problem, or at least there's not as big of a public upcry of kids competing in seven or eight basketball games or volleyball games or soccer games in a matter of two days. And there is data out there to show that if you look at soccer players and the amount that a forward would run in a game, it can be upwards of five miles in a game. So if you do that and you put that over a course of two days of seven or eight, that's well over a marathon that that forward may have run over that course of that tournament weekend. So it just seems like it's a little bit of a double standard to me. And I think that's where I put the biggest pause on there is if a kid is really interested in doing that and they want to put in the time and the effort and training I think that's fine. But I I agree with you. You know, if there is other extrinsic motivators, like there is a parent that's forcing a kid to do it just because everybody else in the family does it, then I don't necessarily think it's probably the right standpoint. Yeah. And just to touch on what you said about these weekend tournaments and events, you know, we have our kids doing more than professional athletes would do. You, You would never see the New York Yankees play three games on one day. And those are professionals who are doing it for a living making sometimes millions of dollars where we're having 10, 12, 14 year olds play multiple games on a weekend exposed to environmental stressors, costs lots of money. I mean, a variety of factors there. So I think there's a lot about 
youth sports culture that we've been trying to change on a national front. But I think from a, a running standpoint, I, I think it's it's a great sport. As you said, it's lifelong. I have more concerns about some of the cross-country runners and the volume that they do as opposed to people who are running a marathon. You know, I, I see cross-country runners coming to the office and they're running 40, 50, 60 miles a week when we know that once you go over 40 miles a week, there's a higher risk of an incidence of injuries. The actual running in the marathon is not as concerning as the training. And if it's done properly, it could be safe. Yeah, I always loved when I was uh, in high school doing cross country, our rival school that was always us one and two, typically for most of the races throughout the year is they were considered a high mileage team. They actually would run the the boys team would run up to 70 miles a week. And uh, we were considered a very low mileage team. We were probably putting in 20, 30, maybe tops, I think. And parts of the season, they would probably excel. But when we got to the final meets at the end of the season, that really were the ones that counted technically in the big picture of things, we would kill them every single time. And I think they'd just be burnt out at the end. So I, I agree with you as far as just the volume. I, I talk about the same thing when we talk about our swimmers is just if we took the volume of that swimmer's swim compared to the race distances and the training that they do, and we translate that to a runner, oh my God, we would be like freaking out <laughs> as far as the amount of that goes. So you're right in that sort of standpoint there. It's not the quantity always, it's the quality. And that's what I try and stress with a lot of my athletes is that you don't have to keep doing more and more and more, but we want to put in the good effort and the good time. And it doesn't have to be like volume all the time. I mean, you do have to put in miles, but it doesn't have to be an excessive amount in order to get better. Why don't we uh, end our podcast with something we call the pearl of the podcast, as we usually do. And that's your take-home nugget for our listeners. So, Joel, what is your pearl of the podcast? Well, Mark, since you came all the way from Virginia, I want to give you two pearls <laughs> okay. uh, for the price of one. Sounds good. So, first, you know, it's important for kids to find ways to become and remain physically active for their entire life. And there's many physical and psychological benefits to physical activity, whether through organized sports or free play, which we often forget about. And the activities must be fun and accessible for the child in order for them to continue. But specifically around marathons, I think whether a child should run a marathon needs to be an individualized decision after discussion involving the child, their parents, and their pediatrician. And the motivation needs to be intrinsic to the child. And they need to have the cognitive ability to decide to train properly and run a distance of that duration. Awesome. I'd like to thank Dr. Joel Brenner for his expertise and for finally giving in to being on the pod. You've been a little hesitant. That's all right. That's all right. I do appreciate his insight. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at pedsportspod. And like I mentioned, I will be tagging uh, Dr. Brenner sometime in the future to do an episode with me on mindfulness. We had an interesting discussion on that earlier. So we will uh, try and get that sometime in the future because I think it's a, it would be a helpful and interesting topic for all of us. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.